Hey, the passage today is Mark 10. So if you want to grab your Bibles, we'd love if you would turn in them to Mark 10. You also have a device or a, or a phone. We are phone and device friendly here. Um, and we go through the ESV version. So if you're clicking away, you can click on that. We'd love to have you do that so that you can follow along. Uh, one of the reasons why we haven't yet done screens is because um, I don't want God's Word coming up on the screen as the way to, uh, to entertain you, but I want you to be engaging with His Word why, why we, while we go through the passage and kind of force you to have to find where the book and the passage is. We just think that's, that's a really good thing for us to uh, engage in and even struggle through. So that's one of the reasons why we, we don't have screens, and uh, we'd like you to open your Bibles and to engage with us in that way. If you would, would you bow your head so I can lift up our time? Holy Spirit, we pray to you as the third person of the Trinity to remove any layers of indifference that are in us right now. Soften those areas of our hearts that remain hardened to the joy of Christ and to the strength that comes when we live in deep dependence on Him who loved us, who died for us, and whoever lives and intercedes for us now. And it's in His name that we pray together. And together we said, Amen. Well, let me just start right in. We're going to be doing Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. And I'm just going to read it right now. So if you want to follow along, that would be fantabulous. And he left there, speaking of Jesus, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 10, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. You know, Melissa and I, we were, man, we've been gone for a few weeks, and it was a grateful time spent for us. We were really thankful to be able to spend some time away just to read and to reflect and, uh, you know, eat key lime pie. We had a lot of key lime pie, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, you know, it's hard for me right now. Um, and I think that's literally like all, maybe all we did the whole, the whole time we were gone. Um, but we're glad to be back because, uh, believe it or not, we, we really missed you. We missed you guys. That's not the only reason why we came back. We, we have a job. We're employed here. We have to come back. Uh, but here's, here's what we didn't miss, okay? We, we didn't miss 
church. Church is not what we, we missed. We missed you, the church. That's who we miss. Spending time with you and talking to you and praying with you, singing with you, opening God's word with you like what we're doing now. We missed interacting with, with you. And, and interaction is some of what we just read about right now as we opened up into Mark 10. And what we've seen here and what we're, what we're going to look at is three groups of people who in actuality are, are, are interacting with Jesus, aren't they? If we look at what we just read, we have Pharisees, we have disciples, and we have a third group of, kid, uh, of people interacting with, with Jesus who, who are kids. And, and these were like real, like, ki- like honest-to-goodness kiddos, right? Like dirty hands and feet kids, like food smeared around their mouths kids, screaming, laughing, unruly, but lovable kids, your kids. That, that's what we have here. And these, these stories of interactions that we read about today, they, I think they pose the questions, what do we know about Jesus? And maybe a better way to ask that question that we're going to be diving into this morning is, what does Jesus want us to know about him? Have you ever thought about it that, that way? What does Jesus want us to know about him as we read this this story about his life in the gospel according to Mark. Because if we knew Jesus the way Jesus wants to be known, I would imagine it should probably change many things in our lives today, right? I, I remember this was years ago. Um, man, there was a couple, and we lived in a, a, in a condo back when we first got married, and we lived in this big condo complex. And there was this couple there that lived a few, you know, a few doors down, and uh, man, they, they just, they look, they, they were very serious looking. And uh, Melissa and I, you've seen us not too serious, I don't know, maybe we are, not, not real serious looking. And especially not when we were super young, really not. And this couple just looked very serious. And, and we just never really, in all the years we lived there, we never really connected with them. And we were, you know, truthfully, they were a lot older than us and we were like super scared. And, and, um, but the day we moved and we had our, our moving truck, you know, in the, in the little spot there, uh, the guy came out, and uh, he, he, like, asked what, what was going on. It was the first time we'd really ever spoken to him. And, um, man, he, uh, he, was so, he was so nice, and, and he was so gracious. And he, uh, I, maybe I should have been afraid of this, but he invited us into his condo, and um, he gave us this tour, and, like, he had done things with his condo that were, like, unbelievable. Like, it did, like you walked in from the outside, and it clearly did not look like our condo. Like, this was somebody who, like, transformed it from the inside. It looked completely different. But he was so gracious. And what, what's, what's embarrassing about it is me and Melissa are standing there with this guy. And we had given him and his wife, like, a nickname during the years that we were there. And, and they were, they had been affectionately known to me and Melissa as, right? That's what we referred to him as all of those years, embarrassingly enough. They were the mean people, and we walked away, and I looked at them, and I said, they're not the mean people, like, they're not the mean people at all, and um, he was the opposite of mean. It's just that we had, we'd never interacted with the guy. We had never interacted with him or his wife. We'd actually just interacted with more of a, of a caricature of what we thought they were, um, really not based on, on any relationship or any, any reality. Um, here's what happens when Christ intercedes in your life or in my life. 
an interaction starts. It takes place. And we're meant to experience an interaction with Jesus. Christianity, it's not knowing things about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. And most importantly, being known by Jesus. That's the picture we get as we go through Mark. It's entering into what I'm calling this morning, uh, when we look at these passages, I'm calling a relationship of embrace. That's the kind of relationship that we're meant to have with Christ. Because when we come to Christ, when Christ saves us from our sins, like we just sang about, when we're made alive in Christ, it means now we're in Christ. We have union with Christ. We are hidden in Christ. We have, the Bible tells us, the mind of Christ. We are the righteousness of Christ. This is how Christ forever pulls us in and embraces us. And not only that, but he securely embraces us. It's a secure embrace because God doesn't let anyone snatch us out of his hands, out of his embrace, ever. So one of the questions for us this morning that I I hope we can answer is how do we experience this embrace? And the short answer is we experience it by coming to him in childlike dependence. That's how we experience this embrace because on the other hand, we can come to him in childlike defiance. The problem with that is that those who come to him in childlike defiance aren't really coming to him at all and they actually won't be embraced by him. So as we look in verse 1, this is what we're seeing as we lead through this passage, which at first seems like two kind of disjointed uh, sections here, right? Um, But in actuality, we're going to see how they come together, because when we get into verse 1, we see that Jesus has begun his journey to the cross. We've seen that over the last chapter, haven't we? He's begun the journey to the cross. He announced to his disciples a few weeks ago, for our purposes, that he was heading someplace, that this was going to be the result of his mission was that he was going to be heading to the cross, to die, to rise again. So this is about Jesus beginning that journey to the cross as he travels to the region of Judea, which is near Jerusalem. And what we see here in verse 1 is that the crowds, they gather to him. The crowds are gathering to him, and he does what he came to the earth to do, which is preach to them. It says he teaches them, as was his custom. And, you know, we can... We can relate to that right now, can't we? Sitting here, we can relate to this in some ways because we are gathering to Jesus right now. Whether you know it or not, you are gathering to Jesus right now. Have you ever thought about it that way? What am I doing? What am I doing when I come on Sunday morning? am Am I just hanging out? Did I just find a better hangout than the other, and I quote, 140 churches in Wayne County? What are we doing? Well, we're actually gathering to Jesus, not just to learn about truth, but to interact with a person, with the person who embodies truth. Do you ever think of it that way? John said, the apostle John said in his, in his gospel, he said, and the word became flesh. We're interacting with the word, but the word as a person. He said, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. He's talking about what Jesus did when he descended to the earth. And then John said, and we have seen his glory. We've seen it. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you know what we do when we come into a situation like this is we are interacting with the glory and the grace and the truth of a person that is relating to us, who is interacting to us from his word. Does that make sense? My fear 
for me and for you is that we have grown to see the church gathering as more of like a buffet line, as more of a smorgasbord. I mean, you hear people say that, right? I, you know, I don't come here for the preaching. It's really the music. I tolerate the preaching. Probably most of you guys here. Or it's the opposite. You know, the music, eh, I come here because I like the way the guy preaches. Or, you know, it can be anything, right? The kids' ministry has a SpongeBob theme, and my kids dig that, right? It feels like the back lot of like a Nickelodeon set. I dig that, you know? When I show up, they got like these slides that like jump through a pool, go through eight hoops, and by the end of it, they're fully fed, and they land in the backseat of my car just perfectly as we're skidding out, you know, the, the, the driveway, getting home to the game. I'm really exaggerating now, aren't I? Not so much, depending on where you've come from, right? But a buffet line, a buffet line, a smorgasbord, it's kind of impersonal, isn't it? It's not the most personal way to engage with, with a chef or with the owner of a restaurant. It's all about getting what you want. There's no interaction, really, with anybody. There's no interaction with a chef. It's just about getting the food that you like as quickly as possible and as much as you can pile on your plate. What's interesting is that Jesus never suited some people. And more specifically, for who we're looking at today, he never suited the preferences of the Pharisees. When they gathered around him, it was to try, as it says in John chapter 8, bring a charge against him. And this time around, what they're using to do that is they, they want to ask him about divorce. Just a heads up, I mean, I wasn't super pumped getting back from vacation having to dive into a sermon about divorce. You know, first thing in, but this is what God had for us. And so let me just clear a few things up as you put your eyes down and you, you kind of glide through verses 2 through 8 when Jesus is engaging this question from the Pharisees about divorce. I want to clear up one thing before we step through the section. The Pharisees were not asking Jesus an honest question, right? They were not like, hey, Jesus, can you help set us straight on divorce? Like, we're really struggling with this one. They were trying to set a trap for him. They wanted to prevent him from interacting with and influencing even one more person in his life and in his ministry. That was their goal. That was their interaction with Jesus. That's what they gathered around Jesus to do. So they ask him, they say, they ask him if it's lawful. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And you know what Jesus does before he does anything else? He directs them back to the law. And what we remember about the Pharisees is they were real, they thought they were real tight on the law. As long as we keep every line and word and punctuation mark of the law, that's what justifies us. That's what earns us favor before God. That was the mindset of the Pharisees. Jesus directs them back to the law in verse 3 and says, well, what did Moses command you? And then they reply in verse 4. They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So they answer, Jesus. And now notice... Jesus asks what Moses commanded them, but they reply by saying, this is what Moses allowed. Interesting. And then Jesus explains in verse 5, if you look down in verse 5, that the reason for this allowance was because of their hardness of heart. Because divorce was never part of God's original blueprint for marriage. Now what the Pharisees are referring back to when they quoted to Jesus about what the law of Moses says is a passage from Deuteronomy 24, which is one of the first five books of the Bible where the law stated that a man could issue a certificate of divorce 
to his wife if he found some indecency in her. Now, at this time, and even back in the time of Moses, there were both liberal and conservative interpretations of what this word indecency actually meant. All right? So the liberal view was that the man could interpret indecency any way he wanted, and that he could divorce his wife at will. So like if you were a wife and you woke up and you know, the eyeliner was a little uh, runny and, and the breath was a little morning breathy, um, like you could be in big trubs, you know, with the husband back in this time. But then there was a conservative view and the conservative view interpreted the word indecency to mean marital unfaithfulness. Now commentators believe that the motivation the Pharisees had here was this. If Jesus took the conservative view of divorce, then King Herod, whose region they were in, the region of Judea, might arrest and possibly even murder Jesus like he did with John the Baptist, who spoke out against Herod when he married his sister-in-law. They were trying to create a no-win situation for Jesus. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to set him up. They were trying to test him. They were trying to trap him. Imagine trying to trap the person who created language and created breath for people to speak language. Imagine being foolhardy enough to think that you actually have the stuff that would enable you to do that, right? But we've all been in no-win situations. You've been in them. I've been in them. It's like when... It's like when your wife tries on a new dress, right? It's like when your wife tries on a new dress and asks, baby, how do I look in this dress? And you pause. <laughs> because a dilemma has just been created, right? The dilemma is, you don't actually like the dress, but how you answer makes all the difference, right? So you say something to the effect of, Baby, that dress does not match your beauty. Fellas, write that down. <laughs> write that down. That's free. That's free for you this morning. But they were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to put him up against the corner. They did this many times. And we read uh, in Mark and the other Gospels, it was, it was, they had it out for Jesus. They wanted to eliminate him. Jesus says... The reason why divorce exists at all is due to hardness of heart, which is where all marital problems and marital unfaithfulness find its root. So Jesus goes to the root. And instead of debating divorce with these fellows that were just trying to trap him, Jesus draws them back to the word. What a lesson for us. Jesus draws them back to Genesis, to God's intention for marriage. This is what he says in verses 6 through eight. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what we see here is Jesus bringing these boys back to God's God's idea of marriage. He says marriage is a special union created by God 
for one man and one woman to become one flesh. It's a joining together by God that's not meant to be separated by man. He keeps it really clear, doesn't he? Because what does sin do? What does sin ultimately do? Shout it out if you got the answer. It separates. So because sin separates and sexual sin violates the marriage covenant, God allowed there to be grounds for divorce. And then, of course, in verses 10 through 12, the disciples ask for some clarity. And what I want to do is to go through what Jesus, how Jesus answered them. I like to go back to Matthew 5, verse 32. You don't have to turn there, but Jesus gives a fuller answer to this question when he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that is one of the grounds for divorce that we see pretty clearly stated in Scripture is sexual immorality. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.15 actually mentions another ground for divorce when he mentions abandonment. When maybe an unbelieving spouse gives up on a marriage and leaves, he said the believing spouse is free to move on and to remarry and will still be blessed by God for, for doing so. So, my aim this morning is not to get into all the intricacies of what a biblical and a non-biblical divorce is. We can look at these two areas, and we can understand that it's pretty narrow for what God allows when we talk about divorce. We can also understand that there may be implications in some of those things that might lead us to other reasons why we might say that's a biblical divorce especially when we talk about words like abandonment and what that implies in Paul giving us that, that ground for, for divorce. Now, some of you here have gone through divorce. And let me just say that divorce is not the unforgivable sin, okay? There is grace and there is forgiveness available to all who have repented of an unbiblical divorce, okay? Maybe this is a moment, maybe this is a moment where you need to ask God to search your heart if you find yourself in this particular place and then come to a place of repentance because God will restore that. God will restore your heart in that if this is you. Now, like all sin, like all sin, we are called by Christ to repentance. Remember last week when Jeff, Pastor Jeff took us through John 4 last week, where Jesus encounters a woman, a Samaritan woman. Well, this is a woman that had been divorced five times. Notice how Jesus deals with her. Did you guys pick up on that? It wasn't really the primary direction that Jeff went. But notice how Jesus deals with this five times divorced woman. He didn't ignore her sin. He actually called her out on her sin. But he also gathered her to himself. And most specifically, and most graciously, he offered the only way for this woman to stop living in her shame and experience wholeness and restoration. Maybe this was the first time that a man looked at this woman without eyes of lust 
when Jesus encountered her. Maybe this is the first time a man looked at her without seeing how he might use her and abuse her. That didn't erase her divorce, but it meant that in Christ, she could be embraced through repentance and that she could start over again. She couldn't go back and marry all five of those men again, but she experienced a reorientation of her heart that comes through repentance. That's a beautiful thing. That's what's available to all of us for any of the sins that we have found in our lives that have become our identity and become something that allows us to hide in shame. So does Jesus forgive divorce that falls outside of biblical grounds? He does. Psalm 51 says God does not despise a humble and contrite heart. But what this also serves as a warning to us for is that those who have hardened their heart and used divorce as an escape clause to pursue self-interests over sacrificially loving their spouse, God views those actions, he says here, as adulterous. So we need to be clear on that too, hopefully graciously. Because marriage is ultimately a model of something. That's how God designed it. It's ultimately a model of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the relationship between Christ and the church, of which there will never be any separation. So we need, we need to not take our cues from the culture. We need to not take our cues from no-fault divorce. We need to value relationships the way that God values them. Moving on, look what happens next in verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. In other words, he was angry and said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, and truly, I say to you, another way to look at that line is, hey, you're not going to believe this, but whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then in 16, we get this beautiful picture of Jesus where it says, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So right after Jesus talks about not separating things that God has joined together, what happens? The disciples try to prevent parents from placing their children into the arms of Jesus. Kind of a contrast, isn't it? Now, one of the things we have to keep in mind here is that kids were not held in high esteem back then like they are today, right? There were no gender reveal parties, right? There was no babies are us, right? They didn't have all of that industry that we have now that really... Um, that really puts babies into the forefront and allows us to surround them and create a culture around them. It was a little bit different back then. They weren't regarded like that. So the disciples here, who by the way, and ironically enough, never rebuke the Pharisees who gather around Jesus to test him, end up rebuking these parents who gather around Jesus to hold and bless their kids. And this angers Jesus. There is a godly anger. We rarely have it or know what it is. 
But when Jesus gets angry, that's what we truly can see as being righteous anger. He says, let them come. Do not hinder them, for this is who the kingdom of God belongs to. And then he adds in verse 5, believe it or not, those who enter the kingdom of God are those who receive it like a child. And this recalls the time in Matthew 5, 3, when Jesus preached and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, he said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he means by this is that it's the least of these. It's the least of these. And in this culture, children really would have been the least of these. But it's the least of these who will receive the blessing of being known and embraced by Jesus. That's what he's trying to explain to the disciples. That's what he needs them to understand after what they've been going through, after what life is leading him to, about what life will be like after he rises and he ascends to heaven, and they don't have his physical presence there anymore. And so this brings us now to how we approach Jesus. Do we approach Jesus like a Pharisee? Is it just about rules? Is it just about legalities for us? Is it just about morals? This guy says this, but you say this, let me weigh out my options. Is that what it might be like for you when you think of the way that you approach Jesus through his word? Maybe some of the ways that you've approached Jesus as we've gone through Mark over the last few months. Or do you maybe approach Jesus like a disciple? Where you hold yourself, hold yourself back a little bit. I mean, you're in, but you're holding yourself at a safe distance. Not only are you holding yourself at a safe distance, but you're holding others at a safe distance. But how we think about Jesus, how you think about Jesus, which is another way for saying, what is your theology? That's your theology. You all are theologians. How you think about Jesus is your theology. But how we do that will be what determines how we relate to him. So here's the question. What is your Jesus like? What is your Jesus like? What do you think about when you think about Jesus? Because we are engaging with the same Jesus that just shut down the Pharisees about divorce and just shut down the disciples about who they deemed worthy to come in to his arms. It's the same person. Is he an angry person to you? Maybe he's a disapproving person to you. Maybe he's too disagreeable for you. You don't find that your thoughts and your views align much with his. Maybe you feel he's too busy for you. The disciples didn't want Jesus to be bothered with those kids. Or maybe you don't have that view of Jesus. Maybe to you, you have more of a childlike view of Jesus. He is approachable. Maybe you're like one of these children with the runny noses coming into his arms, right? For you, he's approachable. He's accepting. For you, he's going to listen because you know that he's listened to you. To you, he's engaging. Listen, the Jesus who blessed these children was the same Jesus who was heading to a bloody cross to fulfill those blessings. That's the Jesus 
That's the Jesus we're talking about right now. He wasn't just a guy who was good with the kids. He was the guy who was about to die for them. Does your Jesus resemble the one whose love led him to die? It's really important that you would ask yourself that question today because that is the Jesus that changes everything for you and for me. Because the blessing that comes with that Jesus is a relationship of eternal embrace. That's what inheriting the kingdom of God means. The kingdom of God means life forever with Jesus. That's what it means. That's the life that the church experiences. It's just life together and life forever with Jesus. And you know what that means? You know what that means in the here and in the now? If you submitted your life to Christ, it means that you will never be turned away. Let that sink in, right? That's a phrase we use a lot. You will never be turned away. Because sometimes our tendency, and it's probably some people's tendency here more than others, but maybe your tendency is to think that Jesus can't be bothered. That's pretty common in our culture right now, is that Jesus can't be bothered. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, oh my gosh, surely he has something better to do? Look how opposed he was to that kind of thinking right there. Someday those kids that Jesus blessed were going to grow up, weren't they? And someday they would have to return to Jesus the way they first came to him, weren't they? In fact, I wonder if they were part of the group who was read this gospel by the time this was written to this group of people that were hiding, who were suffering persecution. Can you imagine being read that and having remembered that moment when your parents handed you over to Jesus so that he could lay his hands on you and pray for you and the picture that you might have as you're suffering, how that might keep you, how that might keep you secure as you're experiencing something that you don't have an answer for. It's not any different for us. They needed to be and we need to be embraced by Jesus again and again. You need to be embraced too. So do I. So did the Pharisees. But they gathered around him to rebuke him, not to be received by him. But maybe that's you. Maybe you found yourself to be more like that. Maybe you feel more comfortable arguing. Maybe you feel more comfortable about engaging in matters of the law. But what was the law for? What was the law for? To show us how broken we are and how badly we need relationship with Jesus. It was really to make us more like dependent children. It was to restore what was ruined in Eden when we had unbroken union with God. So here's my critical point here as we close. Anybody can gather around Jesus. Anybody can gather around Jesus. But who does Jesus gather to himself in the end? That's the wrestle for us. However long you've been saved, 
If you don't know Jesus right now, that's the question. Because here's a hypothetical for you. How would you react this morning if Jesus made a personal appearance? If after we dismissed, we ended up in the cafe, you're standing in the donut line, and Jesus is grabbing that last bear cloth. How would you react? Would you be like a Pharisee? Kind of like, like okay, I see, I see you. I'm going to back up a little bit. I see you. But you know, I need to clear up a few things before we move on. I have some qualifications. I'm bothered by a few things. Would you be like the disciples? Guys, clear the way. Don't bother them. Long journey from heaven to earth. Guy's hungry. Let's give him some space. Oh, and by the way, you probably don't deserve him anyway. Give him his space. He can't be bothered. Or would you be like the children? Would you go to him with the joy of self-forgetfulness? Like literally tripping over yourself to get to him. And say, Jesus, yeah, I know the night I just had. But I just, I need you. I just need you to put your arms around me. I need you to forgive me. I need you to hold me. I need you to tell me that you will supply my every need. Could this be what Jesus wants you to know about him? Because that's how kids come, man. Kids come with dirty hands. They come with wrinkled clothes. They come with horribly, horrible T-shirts like this. They come with runny noses. They come with tear-stained faces. Dude, they just come. Kids just come. And you know what? Jesus likes that. Do we have to get so complicated this morning? I know, I'm never complicated. But Jesus likes that. That's what Jesus is asking for. He gets angry when others try to prevent that from happening, as a matter of fact. Is that the Jesus you know? Is that the Jesus you know? Is that the Jesus you go to? Or do you think of him differently than the Jesus those children experienced? Because some of you are going to be like, Jesus, you know, we're good. I already paid my tithe. We're good. Right? Jesus, we're good. I already, already did my devotional on Wednesday. We're good. Nope, we're good. Man, I went to church on Sunday. We can connect next week. We're good. Just don't engage, man. We're good. That's not childlike dependency. And if you know Jesus, you are his child, which means you are dependent on him because that's the heart of a parent-child relationship, isn't it? And the true church, listen, listen, the true church can't be people who are anything but that. Dude. As Paul shared with the Corinthian church, God will make his dwelling among us. He will be our God. We will be his people. He will welcome us. He will be a father to us. We will be his sons and daughters. He restores this relationship of embrace through his son, Jesus, who says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
And you, you, tired, hurried, guilty, broken people, you will find rest for your souls. That's the Jesus we have. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for providing your son to us and not a version of him that we have created in our own minds and in our own hearts, but one that we find to be true as we open your words to us about everything that he is. God, allow us to engage with Jesus, to be embraced by Jesus, to bring all of our stuff before Jesus so that we can have a relationship with Him that allows us to have peace with You and allows us to have the assurance that the Holy Spirit supplies us as we share this good and great and gracious news with our neighbors. We ask that You would be good to do this for us and through us in Christ's name. Amen.